Hello everybody. This sermon is the first in our series uh, looking at the women in Jesus's line. And we're going to begin with the story of Tamar found in Genesis 38, a story of hope. Have you ever had to prove your identity? I'm sure we all have be it for opening a bank account, renewing a passport, applying for benefits, or filling out a PVG form for the beach mission. We know how it works. We have to show three pieces of ID. So we go scrambling for our birth certificate, marriage certificate, driving license, passport, and utility bills. At times, proving our identity is important, and these pieces of evidence are vital. In the ancient world, they used genealogies for this purpose. Your family tree gave your family history. Your ancestry defined your station in life and vouched for your reputation. Genealogies were your proof of ID, your CV and your personal references all rolled into one. In many ways, people are still analysing their ancestry today. There are many of us who have traced back to our family lines using websites and public documents, and we've been encouraged by our discoveries. Those into family history say it gives them a cherished sense of identity. It tells them who they are. It is a little different today, Unless you are a member of the royal family or come from the landed upper classes, we hope that every person is free to make their own way in the world. But this is a more modern idea. For much of history, your family background defined what you would go on to do. When we read the genealogy of Jesus, then, we need to understand it as confirming his legal status. It establishes his credentials as a true Jew and heir of David. It's very important that Matthew begins his gospel with it because by doing so, he is declaring Jesus as the true king of Israel and ultimately the true king of all the world. To us modern readers, beginning a book with a list of names seems a little boring, a little out of place but it would not have been to Matthew's original readers. Matthew was writing to Jews and he was trying to convince them that Jesus was their true Messiah. This is the best possible way he could have begun. However, there is something about these opening verses that would have seemed out of place to Matthew's early readers. Very out of place indeed. And that was the inclusion of five women in this list of names. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, and Mary. In a culture that traced lineage exclusively through men, these women would have stood out like a sore thumb, grabbing everyone's attention. Their presence in this genealogy shouts the questions, who were these women? Why did the Holy Spirit single them out as Matthew wrote? And most importantly, what do we learn about this Jesus that Matthew is introducing to us from them? 
These are the questions that we're going to ask of these five women over the next five weeks, and we will do them in order. We begin then with Tamar, whose story is found in Genesis 38. And as we shall see, it is a story of desperation and hope. We do not know for certain, but it is highly likely that Tamar was a Canaanite woman, a non-Jew. If so, that is remarkable straight away for the genealogy of a Jewish king. Tamar came into contact with God's people when Judah, son of Jacob the patriarch, was looking for a wife for his eldest son. Sadly, right from the beginning, Tamar's experience of coming into God's family was not a good one. At Judah's instigation, Tamar was married to Ur. We do not know what the marriage was like or how in love they were, for the marriage did not last very long at all. The very next thing we read in the text is that Ur died. Not a natural death, but he was put to death by the Lord for his wicked behaviour. Now, unlike what you may have been told, God does not do this very often in the Bible. So it is fair to say that for Tamar, being married to such an evil man would not have been a very pleasurable experience. She was probably better off without him. Now, in the ancient world, if a woman was left a widow without having any children, her brother-in-law was then required to marry her. That way, offspring could be provided to continue the family line and inheritance and ensure that land remained fairly distributed throughout the nation. So in her bereavement, Tamar is swiftly married off to Ur's younger brother, Onan. Unfortunately, though, Onan is not too happy about this. He knows God's will for this situation, but he has other plans. With his older brother dead, he is set to inherit his father's estate. However, if he has a son with Tamar, that child will be seen as Ur's son, and the inheritance will pass to him instead, leaving Onan with very little. Onan is not prepared to let this happen. So he invents a new form of birth control so that there is never any chance of Tamar getting pregnant. In other words, Onan acts the dutiful husband, but really he is playing a game, refusing to do what is asked of him by the Lord. Unfortunately for Onan, just like with his older brother Ur, the Lord has clearly seen what he has been up to and he is disgusted by it. So he swiftly puts Onan to death as well for his wickedness. This leaves Tamar a widow for the second time, and she still remains childless, a frightening position for a woman of her day. Judah, her father-in-law, by this point in the story, is also afraid. His two eldest sons have now both died very suddenly, after being married to the Canaanite Tamar. He's beginning to wonder, is this something to do with her? Is she some form of witch or something? 
Judah only has one son left, things are getting very serious. In this situation, tragic as it is, the instruction is still very clear. Judah must now give Tamar his third and youngest son, Shelah, as a husband. But Shelah has to come of age first. So Judah sends Tamar back home to her parents to wait for him. Now that is a blatant insult. Judah should have offered her hospitality in his own home until the time came for her marriage. No previously married woman would particularly enjoy returning to live with her parents. Even today, that would be a challenge. But Tamar's situation was even worse than this, for the text makes it very clear that Judah, like his second son, was also playing a game. He sent Tamar away, hoping against hope that she would die a widow's death. He had no intention whatsoever of giving his youngest son to her as a husband. And we need to realise that a widow's death was actually quite likely. This was a culture where a woman had zero prospects outside of marriage and childbearing. Widows had no means whatsoever of providing for themselves. Tamar had no status, no inheritance, no access to universal credit or pensions of any kind. She would also not be able to remarry because everyone in the surrounding area would know she was supposed to marry Shelah. Tamar has absolutely nothing. The evil of Ur, the birth control method that today would be termed an act of sexual abuse by Onan, and the selfish deceit of Judah have all conspired together to leave her in an extraordinarily difficult position. Oh, how she must have rued the day she met the family of Abraham. Oh, how angry the injustice of it all must have made her feel. Tamar must have had great hopes for married family life, but now she is left completely desperate. Finally, after a long period of misery has passed, Tamar decides to take matters into her own hands. And it has been such a long time. Shella has grown up and come of age, but he still has not been given to her. And Judah, her deceitful father-in-law, has become a widower himself. A place in life that is leaving him feeling rather unsatisfied in the bedroom department. Suddenly Tamar, in all her grief and desperation, sees an opportunity to make things happen for her. She dresses up as a shrine prostitute and sits at the side of a road that she knows Judah will travel down. Randy Judah takes the bait and solicits her services. Now let us realise, not only is this an act of obvious sexual immorality, it is also an act of apostasy. Having sex with a shrine prostitute is the same as idolatry. It is engaging with banned pagan gods. There is so much wrong with Judah's behaviour here. On top of all that, Judah thinks he can get his wicked way without even paying. That is until Tamar demands something as a pledge. 
items of Judah's person that will guarantee future payment in full. A little bit like leaving your driving license at a petrol station today if you've left your wallet behind. Tamar has been abused for many years by Judah's family, but she is not stupid. Of course, nature takes its course, and as a result of this illicit and hugely immoral encounter, Tamar gets pregnant. And in case you thought this story could not get any worse, just look at what happens next. When the arrogant, selfish and hypocritical Judah hears that Tamar is pregnant, he flies into a rage. Of course, he did not know the true identity of the shrine prostitute, so he assumes that Tamar has committed adultery with someone else. Now, remember that Judah never had any intention of giving his third son to Tamar, and now he sees his opportunity to get her out the way for good and leave Shelah free to marry someone else. So he demands that Tamar is brought out and burnt to death. And we now see for sure what Tamar means to him. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. She is nothing more than dirt in his eyes. When as his daughter-in-law, she should have been guaranteed Judah's love and protection. So Tamar is now teetering on the verge of a horrendous, shameful and very painful death. It's now time for her great reveal. In front of everyone, she brings out Judah's personal seal and staff that she had taken in pledge of payment for her sexual services. Immediately, there is no denying whose they are or how she came to get them. Judah's evil acts are displayed for all to see. He has been outwitted by Tamar, caught red-handed and made to look a fool. Now, to Judah's credit, unlike certain American presidents and church bishops, when the evidence of this sexual scandal comes to light, he does not try and obfuscate or cover up. He publicly confesses what he has done. Judah admits that he had willingly forced Tamar into an impossible position by refusing her sheller. And in verse 26, justly, he declares, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. That was a huge confession for a man in ancient Israel, certainly a man of such high standing as Judah. Tamar, the Canaanite, the woman he had treated like dirt, was more righteous, more godly than he was. The text then goes on to tell us that Judah never slept with Tamar again. That is a sign, even though rather backward, showing that from the moment on, Judah and his family would treat Tamar with respect and treat her and her children as their own. The passage ends with Tamar living in her newfound security, giving birth to twins, one of which, Perez, became an ancestor of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, what on earth are we to make of this story? I'm sure some of us, if we've not heard this before, are tapping our heads, wondering who spiked our Bibles. Surely this story of abuse, sex and lust is not in Scripture. But it is. 
and we have to get our heads around it. I'm sure we're all left with questions. Are we to approve of Tamar's behaviour? Did she do the right thing? Are we to see her undercover actions as warranted due to the callousness of Judah's behaviour? Is this a story to give to our daughters and granddaughters, the young women at the teen cafe, and say, look, here is a woman to be inspired by? Tamar is bold, courageous and proactive. Well, actually, I don't think the Bible gives us a straight answer to those questions. Rather, it just tells the story and invites us to think about it. We're to read it again and again, pray over it and allow it to challenge us. And when we do that, like I have this week, we find ourselves wondering whether they are even the right questions to ask. Perhaps it would be better for us to ask, how on earth did the world get so bad that a young woman could be treated so appallingly by supposedly godly men in the first place. Tamar's story is undoubtedly one of sheer desperation. But by finding her name in the genealogy of Jesus, something happens to it. By telling us a little bit about who Jesus is and what he came to do, it actually becomes a beacon of hope. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, sinners like you and me, men and women who live messy, complicated lives, ordinary people who are trying to get life right, but stumble on the way. People who others may deem as tarnished or unworthy, but who are actually still loved greatly and prized by the Lord. As a descendant of Judah, Tamar and Perez, Jesus was human in every way like us. He came from a line of sinners because that was the only way he could save sinners. By living a sinless life in our humanity and then dying a cruel death on the cross, he takes our sin away and exchanges it for his goodness. He forgives us and sets us free, gives us a new start no matter what has happened in our lives before. We are loved by God, and if we turn in repentance to him, we will always receive his welcome. But actually, the hope of the gospel is even bigger than just this notion of personal forgiveness. By placing Tamar's story in Jesus' genealogy, the Holy Spirit is showing us what Jesus came to save the whole world from. Injustice, misogyny, the callous treatment of women by men, sexual abuse, the exploitation of widows. By dying and rising again, Jesus brings the promise of a new world where none of that exists. A world where male and female are completely equal. They are one in Christ. A world where justice reigns and holiness makes men and women whole. A world where mothers never again have to train their daughters to beware of men because men and women live in perfect relationship. This is what Jesus came into the world to enable. And it starts now. As his people try to live like him in the way we treat the vulnerable, we form pointers to the new heaven and new earth that will be complete on his return. 
Advent is the season when we prepare for Christ's coming. As we await Christ's second coming, we do so with great hope. Tamar's story tells us a good deal of what that hope looks like.